Here's what we're going to do tonight. Um, if you remember the first uh, night we talked about our schedule, how we were going to work through the Old Testament. As I've been wrestling with this, I think it would be beneficial for us to hit the pause button on progressing through the Old Testament to consider two important questions that often come up in the Old Testament and how Christians are to think of the Old Testament. Specifically, how are Christians uh, to interact with, uh, relate to the Old Testament law, and then a real thorny and nuanced and somewhat complicated question of what is the relationship between Old Testament Israel and uh, the New Testament church, and what about all these promises to Israel in the Old Testament? So um, before we work through the historical books, Joshua Uh, and Judges and on through Ezra, which we'll do next week, and then the following week we'll get into the prophets, I thought it would be helpful for us, instead of just having some like academic knowledge about the the Old Testament, that maybe we can try and answer some questions that are oftentimes tripping points for Christians, and specifically this first question that we're going to wrestle with, it is one of the things that is sort of lobbed against us as... um, as an inconsistency, uh, specifically with some cultural things that are happening with sexuality and all this kind of stuff. How can Christians condemn homosexuality, but there's other laws in the Bible that they don't really follow anymore, so we're going to get into that. So um, before we do that, let me just uh, read again. It's not going to be up on the screen, but let me just read again. Let's remember when we look at the Old Testament, we're going to put on our our Jesus-centered hermeneutic hermeneutics is just a way of looking at the Bible. It's a lens through which you look at the Bible. We're going to put on our Jesus-centered goggles as we look at the Old Testament. Um, and from that, we, we are getting, uh, I want to read just Luke chapter 24 um, and verse 27, where Jesus, uh, uh, he encounters these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And remember, he questions them. He kind of, he kind of, uh, he obscures his true presence and true identity to them. And then, um, he asked them what's going on. They didn't quite, hadn't quite pieced it all together. And he says to them in verse 25, O oh, foolish ones and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. Now remember, at this point, the New Testament had not been written. So when Jesus says all the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. He interpreted them uh, to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So remember, let's start off. Uh, just recalibrating our minds and our hearts, that the Bible, the Old Testament, is about Jesus. So let me, with that, let me pray, and then we'll launch into these two questions that uh, I, I pray will be helpful for us tonight. Well, Father, we are so grateful for your kindness to us. Uh, thank you for the uh, Womacks and their precious boy. We pray for grace to them and the days to come, and I'm sure there will be many logistical things that need to happen. We pray for provision and encouragement and endurance for them. And uh, we pray, Lord, for the Robert, Robertsons as they're uh, on their way or likely in Poland and, and really girding themselves up for the long haul of being in country for several months or several weeks at least. And we pray for Springer and Josh as they go to be an encouragement to uh, Jeremy and Samantha and, and uh, the little ones. We pray for grace for their travel and for just a wonderful time of refreshing there. We thank you for this sweet family, the Estelles and their ministry. We pray that you'd bless them on their travels. 
Um, And as we now turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would help us see more clearly uh, what the Old Testament is about and what role it should play in the life of, of a New Testament believer. Help us with these things, we pray, and equip us to be more winsome, gracious, but yet uh, clear-headed and uh, wise uh, communicators of your words and your ways to a world that uh, needs a clear understanding of who you are. So help us, help equip us to do that better, I pray tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first question I want us to think about as we've been working through the Old Testament, remember we just Actually, let's do a little quiz. The first 17, remember the Old Testament is uh, divided into three parts, just to help us kind of think about it. The first 17 books are the history books. Now, within those history books, you have the first five books, which are called the Pentateuch or the Law or the Torah. Now, oftentimes, the Law um, is, is kind of shorthand for kind of all of, all of that. But so we got the first 17. The next five books, so you remember that, that those 17 books are the whole storyline, basically, of the narrative of God's dealing with creation and his people. Then the next five books are the wisdom books. That's the Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon. These are books that talk about kind of human experience during this time. And then the next 17 books are the prophets and remember there's there's 12 major prophets and five minor prophets I mean five major prophets 12 minor prophets and they are um, all speaking are being raised up during this time they fit into the historical timeline really kind of towards the end um, so today we're going to consider because last week we looked at the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible we're going to consider one of the major themes of the Pentateuch especially Genesis Exodus well all, all of them is that God has formed a people, and Israel as a nation becomes central to the storyline, obviously, of the Old Testament. And he forms his people by giving them a law, the law, through Moses, the Ten Commandments, and then over 600 commandments that are given over the course of their journeys there after Sinai and at Sinai and later on that form this Old Testament law, which is much of the first five books of the Bible. What relationship, then, uh, does the modern-day Christian have to the law? Should we just scrap it all? Does it have no purpose in our life? Um, What should we do with it? So what role does the Old Testament law have for a Christian today? The purpose of the law in the Old Testament. Now, let me read to you Galatians chapter 3, and this hopefully will help us. I think this is a really, really helpful Paul kind of answers. And again, we have the benefit of having the New Testament, so we're going to Look at the Old Testament in light of the new. So Paul says in verse 19 of Galatians 3, why then the law? Yeah, he asked the questions we're we're asking. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24 is very key. 
So then the law was our guardian. Other translations translate that word as our tutor, our instructor. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so think of the law this way. The law did not create sin. The law just merely magnified it. It, it illuminated that sin was there and it classified it. And it became kind of a, of a guardian and an instructor to help to form God's people, to show them what's right, to show them what's wrong, but ultimately to show them what was needed. So there you can look under letter A there, the purposes of the law in the Old Testament. Paul is telling us there in Galatians 3 that the purpose of the law was never to actually save. Okay, so don't think of it this way, that the Trinity's up in heaven after creation, Adam and Eve fall, uh, humanity is excommunicated from God's presence, and then the Trinity, don't think of it this way, that the Trinity thinks, oh no, we've got to come up with plan B. Let's come up with this law that if they just had a little bit more instruction, they could follow it. And so let's give them the law, and then that fails. Oh no, what are we going to do? Uh, Jesus, you've got to go down there and save them. No, remember, God has had a plan from eternity past. Ephesians 1 talks about how God has planned redemption from eternity past. And part of his unfolding plan of redemption is to form a people through Abraham and to give them this law that that has these purposes. Now, the reformers, the Protestant reformers really broke this down and had lots of good things to say. But let me just kind of make it simple and summarize that the law in the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 different uh, regulations and teachings and precepts that flow from it. One old rabbi added them all up, came up with 613. Three purposes generally are to show what is right. In other words, to display God's holiness and how we are to be like him to show what is wrong, what, what is sin, and how we're to act and not to act, and to show what is needed. And I think that's maybe the most crucial of all because the intention of the law was never to actually save. It was to shine light on sin and to be a guardian to push people to Christ. And so God, yes, his intention in the law is to form a holy people, but it was never intended to actually make them holy, but to push them to holiness, and really ultimately to push them outside of themselves, not to push them inside themselves. Like if we just grit our teeth and try harder, then we can obey, but it's to push them outside of themselves so that ultimately they will realize that they need God. They need somebody to obey the law for them. And that's the promise of Jesus that we see woven through the whole Old Testament, and ultimately it's meant to lift up our eyes to cause us to despair of ourselves so that we will see the seed, the promised one, the conquering king, the suffering servant, the one who obeys the law for us, who is Jesus. Now, and let her be there, there are, uh, over the years, theologians have come up with kind of different ways of classifying the law. Now, nowhere in the Bible is this actually stated, so I want to be clear about that, so I don't know that we need to press these categories too hard. But I do think that these three categories or ways of looking at the different types of law are helpful. So three types of law in the Old Testament. There is the moral law, right? When we think of that, we think of really the Ten Commandments. You know, don't steal, don't 
um, commit adultery, don't lie, don't, don't um, worship other gods. These are things that uh, are, you know, really have to do with the behaviors of the heart. Then there are laws that we talked about last week, um, in, primarily in Leviticus, uh, that um, really have to do with ritual sacrifices, that have to do with the whole sacrificial system that is built out in Leviticus, um, different offerings. These are laws that specifically apply to how Israel is to atone for sin through ritual offerings and sacrifices, okay? That's a big part of the law. And then there are laws that have to do with how Israel should be kind of governed and how they should live, you know, just kind of like civil laws between people. Like if you, you know, kill your neighbor's cow, then this is the the payment that you have to do for this. So kind of how you can live together in society. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the Bible tells us, let us see there, that Jesus, remember, we can't, I mean, we can't fully obey these laws, right? Our hearts are wicked. And even the laws that have to do with sacrifice and atonement for sin never fully take care of sin because they had to have a day of atonement every year. You know, so you put your hands on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat walks away into the wilderness, but the problem is you sin again, and so you need another goat. And so it's year after year, sin again, goat again, sin again, goat again, sin again, goat again. It doesn't really work. I mean, it's temporary. It's prescribed by God, but it doesn't, it's never meant to be the final answer. It's meant to point towards something full and final, which is coming, which is Jesus. And of course, we can't. Our hearts are wicked. In fact, Moses, at the end of the Pentateuch, says, look, he gives them really a prediction. He says, look, what's going to happen here is I'm going to give you these laws. I'm going to give it to you a second time, but you're wicked. You're not going to be able to do it. You need, you need more than just grit. You need a new heart. And then that theme of having a new heart gets picked up in by the prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and they start to prophesy about how what God's people need. In fact, the promise of the new covenant is not that God will come and give you more grit so that you can finally obey. He's going to give you a new heart so that you can finally obey. Because remember what sin has done to God's, to people. It has, it has made us unable to obey God. And we need a new heart. And God begins to promise this new heart. Then we see in the New Testament, Jesus. So the law's in force. And then the new covenant comes. And then the New Testament happens. And what, what's the change now? Let us see. Jesus then fulfills the law and the promise of the covenant for his people. So Romans chapter 8, super important. You guys know Romans 8, right? What's Romans 8? It's the best chapter in the Bible. That's right. You guys have a good teacher. All right, Romans 8. No, it's, I, it's, it's my favorite chapter in the Bible. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, it's this new law now introduced. What's that mean? We're going to talk about that. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember, the law could never save. How did he do this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what is that text saying? It's saying that the law was never intended to ultimately save, but the law is meant to, it's meant to display and amplify the justice and the holiness of God against human rebellion. God gives the law to illuminate that, knowing that we can never fulfill it. And then Jesus comes as the promised true man, the promised true obedient son, and he fulfills the law perfectly, and he satisfies the requirement of the law in his life, in his sinless, righteous life. And then he not only completely obeys the law, this is the gospel now, guys, don't miss this, he not only obeys the law, but then he also offers up himself as a sacrifice that the law demands for the breaking of the law. Do you see that? And now Jesus not only lives the law, but he, he is the sacrifice that the law uh, demands. And because he's not just a bull or a goat, he is the eternal son of God. His sacrifice is sufficient to silence and satisfy the law forever for all his people. Don't make me read a Spurgeon quote right now because I'm about to. Right? Remember that quote about how he drank damnation dry? Oh, man, that just makes me want to shadow box every time I read that thing. And I do read it pretty often. Right? That's what Jesus does in his life. And so he has fulfilled the law for us. And now we need to say a bunch of other things about the gospel, right? Jesus doesn't just only satisfy the requirement of the law. He then also, 2 Corinthians 5.21, gives us his righteousness. Right? For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said was the great exchange. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness on the cross. He fulfills the law for his people. Now the law, it has been not canceled, but satisfied. It's not been abolished, but it's been fulfilled. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Remember we went through it? Matthew 5, verses like 15 through 17, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to satisfy it, right? But then, what's this law of the spirit of life that's in us now? Now that leads us to to letter D there. The Christian is now under the law of the spirit. So Jesus doesn't save us so that we can now just kind of do whatever we want. We now have a new heart, and the law is now written on our hearts, and it's the law of the Spirit. So think of it this way. It's like, this is not a good analogy, and you guys may say, oh, Brad, that's wrong. And maybe it is, but I'm just thinking of it right now, so there's risk in doing that, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. It's like the Old Testament law is like the booster rocket, and it gets... It, it gets us to God, and then the booster rocket kind of falls off, and now what propels us is the, the new engine that God has given our hearts, which is a new heart, regeneration, the spirit that is in us, and the spirit of God now causes us to be able to obey not all these 613 regulations, but the heart that they were pointing to. Does that make sense? Right? So then, um, let's go back and look at 
look at uh, these different types of laws and letter B, moral, ritual, sacrificial, civil. Well, uh, ritual and sacrificial laws, do they still apply? Well, Jesus says there's no need to sacrifice goats and bulls and birds anymore because Jesus has fulfilled them. He satisfied them. They're gone. They've fallen off. There's no need for civil laws because now the people of God is not one nation. It's all peoples everywhere under different governments and different cultures. And so that that doesn't apply anymore. Now, many of the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, are still in force not because they're still in force written on a stone tablet somewhere or in the Constitution of Old Testament Israel, because much of that morality is written on the heart by the Spirit into every Christian. Does that make sense? So then that leads us to letter E there. Why, and this is the, this is the, 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 uh, the uh, objection that many cultural people have for Christians today. They say, oh, you Christians are hypocritical. You say that homosexuality is wrong. And I see where it's condemned in the Old Testament. Uh, where, you know, in Leviticus and all these places. Uh, but Jesus doesn't really mention homosexuality, they think. We're going to talk about that in a second. And so they say, you guys are picking and choosing which Old Testament laws that you want to uh, obey or not obey. And so you uh, aren't up with the times. And so you think that the laws in the Old Testament about homosexualities are still in force, but yet you guys eat shellfish and wear clothes with two types of fabrics and, you know, all this kind of, you break all these other Old Testament laws. Do you see that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of the Old Testament law? These temporary, civil, and sacrificial laws fall by the wayside. But these laws about how we should treat one another are reinforced in the New Testament, specifically sexual morality. It's picked up again in the New Testament. So Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 19, Put it up on the screen. I, I didn't actually give you that verse, but if you can put up Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus says, out of the heart comes things that defile you. And he includes in this sexual immorality. Now, many people say, well, Jesus never mentions homosexuality as that word, but within the Greek word, sexual immorality, porneia, is included all sexual activity that is outside of heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. So it's like Jesus is including everything. It, it, when Jesus uses the word sexual immorality in the, in the Gospels, he's talking about any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. He's talking about heterosexual sexual activity outside of marriage. That's sexual immorality. He's talking about same-sex sexual activity. That's sexual immorality. And then we see Paul certainly mentioned it. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is, is uh, and in other places, Romans chapter 1, clearly saying that this sexual ethic that has been from the beginning in Genesis 2, when God created a male and a female uh, to be a display of his relationship with his people, it is meant to display. So there is, there is so when you get that objection, uh, oh, Christians just pick and choose what laws they obey and you guys just want to be sexual prudes and you're not up with the kind of the current times that's just a wrong and flat and um, really just uninformed interpretation of the bible so is the christian bound to obey the old testament law no but is the christian free 
from the law of the Spirit. No, that law of the Spirit is written on our hearts so that we obey God in these deeper ways. Now the letter of the law, thou shalt not kill, is actually written deeper. Remember, we just went through this in the sermon. Now it's not just thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not be angry with your brother, Jesus is saying. Not just don't commit adultery, but don't even lust after your neighbor's wife, right? And so Jesus writes it even deeper. And it's centered around these heart issues, not these temporary sacrificial um, rituals that Israel did for a temporary time to point to Jesus. Any questions? I know that's a lot. Any questions about that um, first thing there before we get into Israel? Anybody at all? Does that help a little bit? Yeah, Kwame. Nice, nice and loud, so they, or Paul's bringing a microphone, because we're recording it, so we want your... Mic check, one, two. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> is that why uh, in Romans 8, where you just read that um, basically those who walk by the Spirit fulfill, fulfill yes. the law? Yes, yes. And in fact, he, 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 he really plays that out later on in the chapter, like in Romans... Um, uh, uh, Romans, gosh, I need my glasses. Um, yeah, uh, Romans twelve. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the f- Romans eight twelve. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, in other words, the Spirit that's now in you, you are now enabled by God to. Now we're not going to do that perfectly. Let's let's have a good doctrine of sanctification. Right? Doesn't mean Christians are perfected. But it means Christians who we were once enslaved. Romans 8, 7 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we were enslaved by sin, but now we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we are now enabled to obey God. We can still disobey God, but we are enabled to obey God, whereas once we could not. And now we are on this ongoing process of sanctification. And praise God for glorification, which is that day when we will not only be able to obey God, but we will not be able to disobey God, right? Oh, praise God for that day. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, right? That that day's coming. So, uh, yeah, does that answer your question? I don't even remember which question was, but I got excited in the middle of it. Yeah. Vern. Thanks, Robert. <clears throat> um, so you're, when you talked in uh, Math, Matthew 15, 19, where yeah. Jesus was talking, I'm just, that's the first I'd heard that about uh, Porneo, and that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But my question is on why did he call out adultery and then sexual morality? Is he, like, adding extra emphasis to that? Yeah. Or? Yeah, probably. It's not an exclusive list. He's probably just highlighting okay. things. Yeah. And here's another thing is people try and it, I didn't want to cut you off, but did that answer your, you just made me think of something else, Vern, and keep the mic if you've got something else to add, is that, is that Paul clearly mentions homosexuality several times. And people say, oh, well, Jesus never mentioned it, but Paul did. And they try and pit Jesus against Paul. And if that's the case, you have zero understanding of, the, of a doctrine of Scripture God, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, writes Scripture, right? So when Paul is speaking, it has the same force as Jesus speaking. Not because Paul is on the same level as Jesus, but because Paul is writing the words of God. Does that make sense? 
And so people act like, oh, well, Paul said it, but Jesus didn't. So let's be red-letter Christians. That's bogus junk. I mean, when I hear that, it just makes me want to grind my teeth a little bit. It's a very liberal way of looking at scriptures. So now you need to go from shadow boxing to hitting the heavy bag. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's Thank right. you. Right. Yeah. And Robert and I spent about a week and a half in India just hammering home that point about the inspiration of scripture, right? So the Holy Spirit has written scripture, um, and he, 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 he's, it's authoritative. Yeah, Paul. I was just thinking to further emphasize that point, if you still have somebody that's struggling with sort of the continuity of scripture, like Peter who is like Jesus's guy in second Peter affirms Paul's yeah. writings as equal to scripture. As so equal, so, great so point. even if you were like, eh, I mean, yep. well, Peter, if like you have, if you don't trust Paul, then do you at least trust Peter who is affirming yep. Paul's writing? Yeah, that's a great point, Paul. That's in second Peter chapter three. And one of the things I love about that is Peter, an apostle <laughs> who's one of Jesus's tight crew says, Ah, you know, there's some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand, right? And I'm just strangely encouraged by that because if one inspired apostle authoritative Bible writer admits that other parts of the Bible are hard to understand, that's strangely encouraging to me. Amen? Amen. All right. Yeah, good point, Paul. All right, any other questions about... Yeah, Colin. Brad, could you speak to the Messianic Jews, what traditions, rules they, they maintain? Yeah, okay, I'm so glad you mentioned this. I'm so glad you mentioned this. All right, so, um, uh, I, look, I praise God for Messianic Jews, right? And we're going to talk about Jews here in just a second. Um, but I, I hear some Christian, Christians that get like, they get like um, romanticized as if that's a higher form of Christianity. It's not. That's the argument of Galatians 1 and Colossians 3 where Paul says, these things were a shadow, but they're no longer necessary. Right? Now, if a Jew wants to practice a kosher diet, praise God. In fact, Paul in Romans says that uh, it seems that Paul, like he takes a Nazarite vow, he shaves his head and all this kind of stuff. It seems that Paul defaulted to his, to his custom. And even though Paul argued fiercely against the law applying to Gentiles, in other words, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised when they become Christians, and this is a big this was a big debate in the, in the church in, in, in the early, all these Jewish, uh, these Gentiles were being converted. And one of the arguments was, do these new Gentile converts have to obey the law, get circumcised and obey the dietary? Like Paul fought against that, right? In Galatians, that's the point of Galatians. But Paul himself, himself still sort of, it seems to be like an ex, kind of followed the law. Not because he thought the law was doing anything for him before God, but because he was just a Jew by custom, right? Like so, um, you know, I think it's kind of like music preference in a sense. Maybe a little stronger than that. But Paul was not saying that other people had to do that. So if a Jew converts to Christ and they still want to practice dietary laws because they see some wisdom in God on that, Praise God. But Christians should not be psyched out by that as if that's some higher form of Christianity. That's just culture. That's just their tradition that, 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 that may be very helpful for them. But I don't think it's... It, to say that, that Christians should kind of get into that habit would be to undermine the very argument of Galatians chapter... Uh, Galatians, where it says you don't have to do those things in order to be right with God. Did I answer your question, Colin? Yeah. 
So praise God for Messianic Jews. But don't, don't, don't think that that's like a higher form of Christianity. That's like true Christianity. That's the exact opposite argument of Paul in Galatians and Colossians 3. Yeah, but I'm not saying they're doing something wrong, but if they're acting like that's true spirituality, that is wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, right? Okay. All right, any other questions before we get into Israel? Okay, let's get into question two. How should we interpret Old Testament promises to Israel? This is a thick and thorny question. And this is something I get asked a lot lot about, and I I want us to spend a little time thinking about it. Okay, in the Bible, um, Israel can refer to two different groups of people. We need to think about context when when we engage this word Israel. Uh, Sometimes when the Bible uses the word Israel, it is referring to ethnic Israel, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Uh, Ethnic Israel, Jewish people by race. And remember, God formed them out of nothing. He, he made them, uh, he, he called Abram, he made a nation. When there wasn't a nation, he made it. Then the Bible also talks about, uh, uses the term Israel in a spiritual sense to refer to those who trust in Christ in the New Testament. So let's read some scripture. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Um, Paul writes this. For we are the circumcision. So what he's talking about there is he's, the circumcision was a, like slang for uh, the Jews, right? But look what Paul senses here. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. So notice what Paul is doing there. In the, those, in the span of three verses, he's using circumcision in Israel interchangeably. In verse 3, he's calling circumcision, which was like shorthand to describe Old Testament ethnic Israel. He's now applying that to who? To the church, to believers in Jesus, right? Do you see that? That's verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Do ethnic Jews, just because they're ethnic, worship Jesus? No, right? So he's saying there, that, so then go to Galatians chapter 7. This is, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, there is no Galatians 7. Go to Galatians 3. You'll look forever if you want to look for Galatians 7. If your Bible has a Galatians 7 in it, that's not a good Bible. Galatians only has six chapters. Galatians 3. Uh, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right away, we're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. The sons of Abraham are not necessarily always just referred ethnic Israel, right? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And skip down to uh, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 15. 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, now verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. We're going to talk about that in a little bit longer. So then flip over to the end of Galatians 3. Uh, Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in Galatians 3, Paul is expanding the definition of who Israel is in this sense. He's saying that there is an Israel, a circumcision, a people of God, descendants of Abraham, who are not merely descendants by faith. I mean, I'm sorry, by the flesh. They are descendants by faith. And then he states it outright in Romans chapter uh, 9. Let me read Romans chapter 9, where he says, uh, let me skip down to um, verse 6, Romans 9. We're jumping in in the middle of a huge argument right here that he's making, but um, just... Just bear with me here. He makes this point, Romans 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Do you see that? That's really significant. Then go to Romans 2. Last scripture we'll read on this. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. I think this is just, just, Paul just clearly says it here. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in the Old Testament, when we saw the word Israel or Jew, we knew that it was referring to the physical descendants of Abraham. Now in the New Testament, Paul is shedding light. Redemption is progressing. And Paul is saying that now there is spiritual Israel that is distinct from merely physical Israel. And now there is a a spiritual aspect of what it means to be a Jew, right? So Israel can refer to two groups in the Bible. Now to letter B. The promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament are ultimately fulfilled in Christ, right? So we just read from Galatians chapter 3. Let's go back there again. Galatians chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 16, right? So remember in Galatians, I mean, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. And the promise was that I will bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation through you. I'm going to give you land and offspring and blessing, okay? And that is, that is to Abraham and his descendants. And that becomes the ethnic nation of Israel in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you blessing, offspring, and land, I'm going to, basically, I'm going to give you offspring, and then I'm going to bless these offspring, and, and they're going to give them this land, right? Now, Paul sheds light on who that offspring is. 
Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So, the inheritor of the promises to Israel in the Old Testament is Jesus. Abraham's descendants all failed. They broke God's covenant. Jesus obeys God perfectly, and he is the one that inherits the blessings that were promised to Abraham. And then Paul's argument, as he continues on in Galatians 3, is that those who are in Christ by faith receive the promise, right? So what is it? So do you see the, do you see the, the flow of logic? The Bible starts off with a group of people called the Jews, ethnic Jews, right? And even within Old Testament physical Israel, Israel, there were like true believing Jews like Abraham and his line. And then there were people that were like disbelieving, covenant breakers. And God brings a true Jew, a true obedient Jew, Jesus along. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. And now the whole Old Testament promises to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. And now a true Jew, what it's, the whole Old Testament has been pointing to is Jesus who is the true person of God, and now those who are in faith in Christ are the true people of God or spiritual true Israel. Does that make sense? I know that's kind of like, maybe you've never heard that before, but that becomes really, 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 really important as you're thinking about the New Testament and how it interprets the Old Testament. So now, because some Christians, I think, being very well-meaning, think that the Old Testament promises to Israel must be literally fulfilled in ethnic Israel. Right? Have you ever heard that? Well, I appreciate that, that desire, but I think it is a wrong way of looking at the Old Testament and what those promises ultimately were pointing to. They were pointing to Christ and those who would be in Christ by faith, which includes Jews and Gentiles who by faith, not by ethnicity, are the people of God. So have you ever heard this thing that I think a lot of Christians I think are saying in, um, I think they're saying it in, uh, it, it, they've probably heard it before and they're saying it from a, 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 a good place where they just think it's the right thing to say. They'll say things that, well, this means that those who bless God's people will be blessed. Have you ever heard that before? And they interpret that to mean that we are sort of bound to always side with political, ethnic Israel and everything. And if we don't, it's kind of like some voodoo doll that God will stick you with if you mess with Israel, right? Have you guys heard that? Okay. Now, I'm going to say some things about Israel that I think are very important. We should support Israel on a lot of levels. But that mentality is a wrong interpretation of what's going on in the Bible. Who is Israel? Israel is ultimately Jesus. And who is the inheritor of the promises of Israel? Jesus. And who is in Jesus? Believers by faith, not people who have a certain ethnicity. And so... This idea that 
well, you got to believe in Jesus, but there's this kind of strange little rabbit's foot out there, this little voodoo sort of superstitious thing that America needs to side with Israel all the time politically, or, you know, America will be blessed if they side with Israel politically, as if it's this strange little rabbit's foot thing out there that we need to do. Well, I can make an argument for you politically and logically is what, yes, I think we should support Israel like we should support our other allies, but not because it's some little magic foot blessing out there that all of a sudden America will be blessed no matter what they believe about Jesus so long as they support Israel politically. It just, it doesn't make any, do you see that's a misinterpretation of what's going on in the Old Testament. Now, let me, before you, so you guys can breathe, you're like, what's going on? I love Israel. I think we should support Israel. Clearly. But not because it's some magic foot blessing. Do you see that? Israel, the promises to Israel in the Old Testament point forward to Christ. And we, those who are in Christ by faith, are the ones that inherit the blessings and the promises that are promised to Abraham. Now, let me also say that I believe that Romans, I don't believe it, it's clearly there, God is not done with Israel. Romans chapter 11, in verses 25 and 26, Paul says that Israel that God in his mercy has not forgotten this ethnic group of people, but he is going to, I think, in, in the last days, pour out his mercy on this group of people, the ethnic Jews who are unbelieving, and cause them, he says there, all Israel will be saved. I don't think that means that every single ethnic Jewish person will be saved. I think it's a, like a, a way of saying like all of them, like a, a revival hit all America, like there'll be a great move of God where a great number of ethnic Jews will be saved. So I think we should have an eye on Israel. We should think about it. We should pray for it. We should send missionaries to it. But, uh, but to, to make Israel the center of the Bible is to miss the Christocentricness of the Bible. Does that make sense? Right? So the center of the Bible is spiritual Israel, which is Jesus, not ethnic Israel. Does that make sense? Okay? So yes, we should support Israel because they're a democratic government that's our ally that is being molested by wicked, wicked, wicked nations around it. But not because it's some little rabbit foot of blessing, as if America can do whatever they want. But as long as we support Israel, we'll be fine. That's just, that's just, biblically, that doesn't, it, 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 it's just missing the point of the promise that God made to Abraham that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. Nobody is saved. This is the important point. If you're like, whoa, Brad's lost me. This is crazy. When is this getting? Nobody is saved because they are a Jew. They are saved because they have faith in the true Jew, Jesus. Does that make sense? You, you are only right with God because you are in Christ, not for any other reason. And to move any other direction off of that is to really, I think, get to, to be in drastic, drastic error. 
Now, I want to reemphasize Romans 11, 25, 26. God's not done with ethnic Israel, and I think Romans 11, 25, and 26 clearly says that God is going to pour out His Spirit in the last days on Israel, and a great number of them are going to be saved. But they're going to be saved not because they're Jewish. They're going to be saved because the mercy of God, and He's going to cause their hearts to bend towards Jesus, and they're going to put their faith in Christ. Does that make sense? So we should, we should support Israel, we should have great hope for Israel, we should send missionaries to Israel, but uh, it's not like we can do whatever we want, but as long as Obama supports Israel, we'll be okay. That's just, that's, that's rabbit foot mentality. That's like, that's like, you know, it's like lucky rabbit's foot. It, it, it just misses the gospel. All right, any questions? I know that's a, a lot. Kwame. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I've heard. Um, actually, I just now started hearing um, about some believers who believe that you know the lucky rabbit's foot mentality about Israel. Yeah. But I grew up hearing that if we are in Christ, then uh, the Old Testament blessings, yeah, the promises, like we can have right now. For example. I um I went to a prosperity church uh, years years oh, ago. Gosh, yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know where you're going with this, and it's okay. so important. Yeah, yeah, that was like okay, yeah. we're in Christ, so yep. you know we should have acres and acres. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you're on saying. Yeah, okay. okay. So so that's the thing about the Old Testament. The promises to Israel will make you blush. They're so good, right? But they are not ultimately talking about. This life, they, the, the Old Testament, these promises and prophecies have these horizons, right? Many of them are like a first horizon, which is Jesus' Jesus's, uh, first coming. And then many of these promises are ultimately talking about when Jesus comes again. And so I think the, the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it promises too much. It promises too little, the pro- yes, I believe in the prosperity gospel in the sense that forever and ever and ever we will have, we will have, we will be so satisfied in Jesus that, that, that but that is fulfilled in eternity in glory. And to think that the, the prosperity gospel is wicked because it points people to these 80 years, not eternity with Jesus where every, we shall, we shall, as Jonathan Edwards says, our joy will increase because God's beauty and glory never ceases. And so the lie, of this, the, 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 the wrong interpretation of the prosperity gospel is they take these promises for the end of the age and they try and bring them into this age. And thereby they take then these blessings and they make it all about us and our comfort in these 80 years rather than in Christ forever and ever and ever. And, it's centered in that, and even that, the promise is centered around Jesus and his glory. Yeah, did that kind of answer your question? So I think they're, they're, they're trying to pull those, those promises of the eschaton, the age to come, into this age merely for us. And that's just a wicked, wicked lie. Wicked lie. Yeah, good question. What's the indicator in Romans 11 that it's talking about ethnic Israel versus spiritual Israel? Uh, are you talking about verses 12? See, now Romans 11 is a perfect example. He goes back and forth on both. If you read all through Romans 11... Um, it's hard to um, 
it, you know, you got to really pay attention because he seems to be going back and forth. Um, okay, uh, so in verse 25, um, if you read the rest of Romans 11 up to this point, specifically starting in verse 11, he's contrasting ethnic Israel that's been cut off because of their unbelief and Gentiles who have been grafted in because of their belief. That's the argument that's leading up to um, Romans 11.25. So the context leading up to verse 25 is he's clearly speaking about ethnic Israel in that sense because he's contrasting unbelieving ethnic Israel with these believing Gentiles who've been grafted in to the olive tree is the analogy he's using. So Sarah then, when he gets to verse 25, because you know, that's a good point, because we made this point that sometimes he's talking about both, so how do we know that he's talking about uh, ethnic Israel here in Romans 11.25? That's the context of Romans 11. And then we get to Romans 20, 11, verse 25, and he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you, want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So clearly the context there is that who's been partially hardened here? Which Israel is it? Well, it's not spiritual Israel, right? That wouldn't make any sense. That verse wouldn't make any sense. So what Paul must mean in verse 25 when he talks about Israel is ethnic Israel. Does that make sense, kind of? Does that answer your question? So good, good instincts that you're looking at the, you know, asking questions of that. So clearly the context of Romans 11, 25, and 26 is ethnic Israel and how they are very important, and God will, in his mercy, bring a great number of them, of them in. Any other questions? Okay, I don't, let me just breeze through letter C there. Um, what about the land promises to Israel in the Old Testament? A lot of people get excited about this because all these land things going on with the nation of Israel. Now let me just say equivocally up front, I think clearly... Uh, the United States should support Israel politically. And clearly what's going on with Israel and its neighbors is wicked and evil and it's satanic. And, and clearly the way Israel has been molested through the centuries and is troubled by its neighbors is because the devil knows that Romans eleven twenty five and 26 is going to be fulfilled and he hates it because it's a display of God's grace. So ethnic Israel clearly is, is being harassed by the nations, Right? Uh, but what should we make about these land promises? And many people say, well, Israel has a divine right to the land. Okay, have you heard that? Well, let's think about what land is. Israel, even if we thought that ultimately the promise in the Old Testament was about a physical piece of land, Israel is currently covenant breakers. They are outside of the covenant, which is Christ. So they would not have any claim to the land because they are breaking the covenant, okay? And if they would repent and believe in Jesus, then they would have a divine right to the land if we think the land is ultimately about some dirt in the Middle East. But I think even the land in the, Old, the land promises in the Old Testament are just a sort of Old Testament temporary shadow of something far greater than a, you know, a country in the Middle East, the land, the Canaan land in the Old Testament, physical dirt, becomes expanded to the whole world in the New Testament, where Jesus says in Matthew 5, the meek shall inherit, not the Gaza Strip, the meek shall inherit the earth, 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the world is yours in Christ, right? And then we see in Revelation 21, we see the people of God who are in Christ, true Israel, inherit the new heavens and the new earth. So I think the land promises to Israel in the Old Testament are a kind of picture a temporary picture that's pointing towards not just physical Canaan land, but true Canaan land, which is rest in Christ forever and ever and ever. So to think that God's people would be bound to some dust and some dirt in the Middle East is again to think too small. Israel's hope is not better boundaries. Israel's hope is Christ where everything is theirs because they're in Christ. Does that make sense? Now, I want to also say, should we side with Israel politically because they're being jacked up by these satanic, wicked nations around them? Yes! Yes! But not because Genesis 12 says that they're entitled to this 12-mile piece of dirt in Palestine. Do you, make, do you understand that? See, there's, there's a nuance there. They're entitled to much more if they will come in Christ like every other true Jew is, who's in Christ. So some implications about how we should view modern-day Israel. Well, we, we, should clearly, uh, we should clearly support them, I think, because that's wise and prudent, and they're a good ally, and they're a democratic nation, and uh, we should do that. And I think as Christians, we should have an eye on them, because I think what's going on in Israel, even being formed as a nation in 1948, is significant, because I think God is in the process of setting things up so that Romans 11, 25, and 26 can happen, right? Right? So God is setting it up, I think, so that um, all the Jews are coming back to this place so that a great number of Jews can get saved. So yes, we should rejoice in that. And isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? Just like God brings good out of wicked, that God used the wickedness of that Satan dictator Hitler to be the instrument by which he regathers his people? Oh, isn't that just the way God does stuff? He uses wicked evil to bring about his great and glorious good. That's what happened in Israel in the Old Testament. That's what happened on the cross. I think that's what happened with, in, with Israel in 1948. So should we pay attention to that? Yes. Yes. But my concern with many American Christians is that they have been taught that mere political support with Israel is what the Bible calls us to, and that's not. Yes, we should support Israel biblically, but we should support and love Israel by sending the gospel to them, by sending missionaries to them, to being like Paul in Romans 9, pleading that they turn, from Christ, turn to Christ. And there is an organization that many Christians uh, get behind and think is a great thing, which I think is really off base. In fact, they're coming to Columbus here in a couple weeks, and it's an organization called Christians United for Israel. And on the surface, it sounds like a good thing, but Christians United for Israel, first of all, was started by a charlatan false teacher by the name of John Hagee who should not be listened to. He, has, he preaches ridiculous things. And... Christians United for Israel was started really as a political rally to uh, be a political force that protects it. Now, is that something that maybe Christians should be involved in? Yes. 
But Christ, the organization Christians United for Israel in one of their pledges says that they won't proselytize Israel. In other words, they won't try and witness to Israel. That's the very thing that Christians must do, right? And so I appreciate the desire to care for Israel politically, and I want to be part of that, but that's not, that's not my primary aim as a Christian. That might be what I do as an American citizen, but as a Christian, biblically, I want to, with tears in my eyes, like Paul has in Romans 9, who cares for his countrymen, say, I plead that you would turn to Christ because your hope is not in being Jew. Your hope is in believing in the true Jew, Jesus, and being in him and inheriting uh, the blessings of God. Um, yeah, so Christians um, need to have that nuance as they think about these things. Any questions? I know this is like, some of you may disagree with this, might be paradigm shifting, might be new, I don't know. Any questions, Paul? Do you think that, the, so everything you just said about kind of this idea that maybe these Old Testament promises were not really even just about their, is that sort of affirmed in for, Colossians chapter, sorry, go ahead. For a time they were about, but yeah. you see the unfolding plan of redemption. Yeah. God is like, he's like layering, he's like unfolding it. And certainly at the time it was about physical land, but we see, now we read the New Testament, we read the Old Testament now through the lens of the New Testament, we realize, aha, this is what ultimately God is pointing to. So this yeah. verse in Colossians chapter 2 where it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, yes. but the substance belongs to Christ. Would yes. that be sort of a good... Like, like, sort of spiritual, uh, I mean, sorry, scriptural sort of confirmation yes. of that. Yes, but I think an even better one is if we go to Hebrews 11, right? Because who does he make this promise to of land in Genesis 12? To Abraham, right? Now the writer of Hebrews sheds more light on us for what Abraham really was seeing there. Abraham, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By, f- by faith, Hebrews 11, verse 8. I think we got it up on the screen, maybe. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Where's that? The Canaan land, physical place, right? And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Skip down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the writer of Hebrews, do you see what he's doing? He is spiritualizing the land promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. He was saying ultimately it wasn't about physical Canaan land. It's about heavenly Canaan. Rest with Jesus forever and ever. Yeah, so I think you're right. Colossians 2 is a great verse. 
for that. But I think even more pointedly, Hebrews 11 speaks to that. Any other questions? Jacked you up enough for one night, I guess, huh? Brad, I have a... Whoa. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. Moses is speaking. I am so sorry. Moses gives the law. Listen to me. Um, (laughs) You said that he's spiritualizing these Old Testament promises, but I've also heard it said that probably even a better way to think about it is that by giving these Old Testament promises and physical blessings, God was materializing the real blessing. Yeah. That he was making it something, something tangible and Boom. concrete for them to see to understand what he was really getting at. Boom. That's super. Yeah, thank you. Because you're, you're, welcome, going, you're going to Reform Theological Seminary in Atlanta and you are taking Old Testament right now. So you just had to get that in there. That's real good. But you, you, Robert, that's a great point. And the reason why that's a great point is because the promise of the new heavens and the new earth is not that we're going to be floating around and uh, disembodied spirits with robes on and, and, and is, you know, with, with, with wings and playing harps. It's going to be a real, we're going to be resurrected, a glorious body. Philippians, we're going to be like Jesus, right? First Corinthians 15, we're going to work and there's going to be culture and there's going to be music and there's going to be food and we're going to enjoy everything forever and ever and ever to the glory of God. And the new heavens and the new earth is going to be real and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be so much better than anything this earth currently has to offer great point robert great point great point and that's our hope not the prosperity gospel that's the that's the true prosperity gospel right in christ you have all that you need right and it's and Ed, man, just read Jonathan Edwards on heaven sometimes because God's glory is unending and there's no limit in it. Then the creature's enjoyment of His glory will be never ending. So we'll wake up in heaven one day, which by the way, I don't know if we're going to sleep or whatever because the sun's going to be. There's not going to be time. But anyway, every day will there be time? I don't know. But passing of whatever, whatever, our pleasure in God will never tap out. And you know what? That's the way to fight sin, right? Right there. That's the way to fight sin. Listen to me, young man. When you can overcome a counterfeit pleasure by the promise of the future pleasure that will never end, it will make all of the the rotten apples of this world pale in comparison. And you, like Moses, and Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 early on, you will forsake the riches of Egypt for the greater reward in Christ. Oh, man. Yes. 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 Amen, sister. Amen. She agrees. Good baby theology right there. Any other questions? <laughs> you got me preaching there, Robert. All right. I've worn you out enough tonight. Let me pray, and if you need to stick around afterwards and ask questions. Uh, and let me, just, let me just affirm. I love Israel. <laughs> I think Americans should support Israel. I think they are our greatest ally, them and Great Britain. I think, I think, let me just be on the record here, I think, I think with the Obama administration, how they have distanced themselves from Israel is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. I think we should support Israel. I think we have much to learn from Israel. I think God is in, at work in Israel. I think his hand is on them. And I, to bring about a Romans eleven twenty five. But Israel is not some magic rabbit's foot outside of Christ. 
They're not going to be saved because they're Jew, and they're not just this strange little thing that's out here that we can do whatever we want, but if we bless them and align with them politically, we'll be okay. That is a wrong way of looking at Scripture. And I want to believe more for Israel than dirt in Palestine. I want to say that Israel, when God brings Israel into Christ, will inherit far more than physical Canaan. They will inherit new heavens and new earth. And they will inherit Christ. And so let's love Israel. And let's love Israel by not making them think that they're okay merely because they're Israel or because America's behind them. Let's love Israel by pleading with them to turn to Christ. One little clarification. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. I pray that... um, We've been helped tonight. Anything that I've said that's not true, let it fall to the ground. Um, But whatever has been true and good and helpful and Christ-honoring, we pray that it would help us be conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, we do pray that our nation would, uh, would be one of many tools that you use for the salvation of Israel. We pray for her safety. We pray that she would be protected from her wicked, wicked neighbors. Um, But we pray ultimately that she would not find her security in her ethnicity, but that she would find her hope in Christ alone. And uh, Lord, help help us also be people that can be better witnesses of the truth of the Bible to people in our culture about the role of your holiness and law and how how we should be people that are set apart and holy and how now we are under something much deeper than the laws written on tablets and stones, but now we are living under the law of the spirit of life. And it's just that. It's the law of life that doesn't lead us into gritted teeth obedience, but it leads us into joy and help us see these things rightly. Thank you for my friends tonight. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.